0: Hello and welcome to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman, and this week we're starting our previews ahead of the next set of inaugural lectures, free lectures open to the public, showcasing the work of some of our academics. First up, I've been speaking to Nick Weborn OBE, Clinical Professor of Sports and Exercise Medicine at the University and Chair of the British Paralympic Association. Nick's lecture, titled Paralympic Sports Medicine, the Evolution of a Speciality, takes place place on Wednesday the 27th of February in Eastbourne and I started by asking Nick about that.
1: It is about that evolution of sports medicine as a specialty and really how it's evolved from being rehabilitation into trying to provide the same support for Paralympic athletes as Olympic athletes and that's been my kind of journey over the last 30 years really as to to how you do that. I was... Age 24, doctor in the Royal Air Force, pursuing a kind of a career, probably in surgery or something. And I was working at a Royal Air Force station out in East Anglia with Flying Phantoms and playing rugby and just being a young, active guy with a future ahead of him. And then I broke my neck playing rugby uh, while playing for the Air Force and ended up for a period of time completely paralyzed. Uh, from the the neck down, was uh, from the C7 level, so it involved my hands. And at the time, the surgeons told me that's probably likely to be how things were going to be. But uh, after about six weeks, I had a little flicker in one thumb and that moved a little bit. And I said to the consultant, look, I can, I can, I can flex my thumb. And he said, well, if you can't extend it, it's not much use to you. <laughs> so I thought, right, OK. <laughs> and so... Uh, the battle started there, really, to fight back. And um, But I had a nine-month period in Stoke Mandeville Hospital as a patient, and then because I was in the Air Force, I went to Headley Court, the RAF Rehabilitation Unit. And that period, as a patient, understanding about the rehabilitation journey got me inspired to look at how I could then impact four people having kind of a personal experience and developing the knowledge to to help them. And so I, when I left the Air Force, I went into general practice, but in 1992 persuaded my partners to let me to go to the Royal London Hospital to do the sports medicine diploma course. And that was a full-time course for a year. And uh, during that time, I then got started to get involved with Paralympic athletes. A colleague of mine in the Air Force came back from the Barcelona Games as the chief medical officer, and he, he knew of my personal journey, but also that... I um, was doing the sports medicine course and he said would you like to get involved with the British Paralympic Association and that was kind of the start of it. I started looking into the research base that I could you know w- when you go into a new specialty you're looking for right where's the literature that you can rely on and there was hardly anything there. For me it was then how could I apply the principles and practice of the sports medicine that I've been doing over the last year and start to bring that to the Paralympic athlete.
0: When it comes to the, the level of elite performance for a Paralympic athlete I mean the level has increased at a rapid rate hasn't it so keeping up with sports medicine for a Paralympic athlete must be quite tough as well because we've seen it just it has just risen it's gone through the roof hasn't it?
1: Yes it has I mean there have always been exceptional performances I mean even back in those days you know you'd have someone who was a baloney amputee being able to clear two metres in a high jump, you know. (laughs) Quite extraordinary athletic performance. You know, if you say to an able-bodied person, I want you to hop up to that bar and clear two metres, you know, it's just kind of... um, And the world record for the wheelchair marathon is around, you know, one hour, 25 minutes, so well below the able-bodied record. Mm. Obviously, there are reasons for that in terms of the wheelchair. But... There has been a significant rise and that's been the application of the principles of training, recovery, equipment enhancement and people being able to have the time to devote to training. The funding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my first Paralympic Games was Atlanta in 1996 and that was pre-Lottery days. And we were just starting to evolve then. We were looking at like heat mitigation strategies for the athletes going to that hot environment, and we did some work around that. But the athletes were still part time, you know, uh, self funded. And the introduction of the National Lottery post Atlanta, that kind of thing in the UK to say, right, this is not good enough, we need to fund elite sport, really had a,
0: a major shift in what athletes could do in terms of devotion of time to training. We'll talk about the, the Paralympic movement itself specifically shortly, but it's easy to trace a boom in the level and interest of Paralympic sports and disability sports, isn't it? Because you go back to London 2012 and you've just got these huge crowds everywhere was packed, beams across, you know, primetime television mm-hmm. at, at the time on the back of a very successful Olympics, obviously. Have you seen that, uh, how it's just how it has been from London 2012? Did it take you by surprise and has the momentum continued?
1: I think that I did believe London 2012 was going to be really successful for the Paralympics and the Olympics from a, a participation perspective, you know, an engagement by the public, but not perhaps to that level. And there were kind of two real things which, or maybe three, which really struck that home for me. The first one was when Sarah Storey won her, the first gold medal for the British team in the velodrome in London. And in the health, medical centre in, in London, we had a board where if someone won a medal, we'd put a little sticker up and they, of a medal and they would come and sign it and it would be like a little ritual, they would record the number of medals. So when Sarah came in that morning to the medical centre, the front page of every national newspaper had her photograph on. And I've got this photograph I took with her and the medical team all holding up these front pages of the national newspapers. And then I knew something had changed. You know, that has never happened before. After the Atlanta games, first of all, there was no live coverage of the games. And about two weeks afterwards, there's a one-hour programme showing snippets of it. And here we had you know this full time coverage you know multi channel we had things like the last leg program coming in and 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 creating another element to it. Then it was sitting in the stadium with David Weir in the five thousand meter race and theres as he was going around the track, there was this kind of wall of sound going following him around, and people were just fully engaged in watching an elite sport performance. It was a, a truly amazing athletic performance. And they'd forgotten, okay, this is a person with a disability or whatever. It was just captivation by this. Um, so that was amazing. And the third thing was that when we, after the games, the day after we did a parade through London from Mansion House to Buckingham Palace and the crowds, just they were just packed. It was just extraordinary to see the engagement of British people. In support of the Olympic and Paralympic athletes together, and as we go by, all the other international athletes refer back to London as the the key thing, the, the game changer.
0: I mean, one of my memories of the Paralympics, Paralympic Games, was when Johnny Peacock had to tell the crowd to stop chanting his name before he before he won the hundred metres. It was just incredible. When you're talking about Paralympic sports-specific medicine, I mean, it's very wide ranging, isn't it? Because you've got people with they might have physical disabilities um, in terms of their their limbs and it could be visually impaired I mean that's it's a very broad range that you're at the forefront of
1: yes I mean it's huge that that is that that is the both the fascinating element and the and the challenge because in terms of the medical or health risk of participation it may not relate to the visible impairment that they're competing for so someone who's a wheelchair Athlete, People see the physical limitation, but they may not understand that they have difficulty in thermoregulating. They may not understand that they have limited sensation, so they may be susceptible to pressure areas or urinary tract infection or their cardiovascular um, threshold is limited by the level of their spinal cord injury. Mm. So what people see and what the underlying health elements may be completely different. Mm. Um, For your amputee athlete... When you go from uh, a normal training base or a World Championships to a Paralympic Games, the amount of additional walking is about an 83% increase, they found. A number of uh, additional 5,000 steps per day from getting from your accommodation to the dining hall, to the accommodation, to the transport miles or whatever. And this sudden increase causes skin problems around the residual limb where the, on the stump, which can cause skin breakdown. It's a completely different environment that people go into, which lead to challenges which may cause problems. Or you mentioned someone with a visual impairment. The reason for the visual impairment may be part of a syndrome which has other medical issues relating to that there's one that uh, affects collagen and so their tissue healing and response to injury is different but they're competing because of a visual impairment so as a physician you have to have this wide-ranging knowledge and for a lot of the time I'm looking up rare syndromes you know because you see people and they say well there's three of me in the world with this particular syndrome so you're then looking up okay what are the other factors that associate with this from supporting this person from a health perspective and not just from the sport perspective Mm -hmm. so as a physician
0: it's really it's challenging but fascinating it must be really rewarding as well because you're finding you're finding all these new solutions
1: yeah so i mean and that's the beauty i mean one so so nineteen ninety two when I did a search of the literature there was about eight articles, and there were mostly little reports about oh we did this game this year and it, you know there was very little to to base a, um any preventive medicine on this year there have been over a hundred okay, so the change in the literature output and the
0: interest worldwide it, it has been markedly changed. There's always the, there's always the negative side of sport as well. We've got the profile of Paralympic sports is so high up there now. It means that the interest is higher and the reward is higher, which means the profile of athletes that may cheat, drugs cheats. Mm. There may be more temptation to do that so that's the I guess the other challenge was to be trying to keep on top of people finding ways around like in terms of drug cheats and, and cheating their way to the top of the sport
1: yes I mean I think sometimes people think that just because you have an impairment you're not going to be subject to the same pressures or, or desire to win through uh, unfair methods won't exist but yes absolutely I mean we are fortunate that within parasport the number of doping cases are relatively limited the majority of those cases which have occurred have tended to be in sports like powerlifting where the use of anabolic steroids some in athletics but also the other challenges that there are because of the different medical conditions the athletes have they may be taking medications for support their condition which may be prohibited and one of the issues we have worldwide is the level of anti-doping education for those athletes may not be so good so you go to someone who goes to a, a championships who's got high blood pressure because of a kidney disease associated with their spinal cord injury and they're taking something for the blood pressure which is prohibited and they didn't realize that they would need to get a therapeutic use exemption for it that's one of the challenges is around education um, but yes you're absolutely right there are the same issues and. The IPC is a signatory to the WADA code, so it's exactly the same regulation, the same list.
0: A lot of people may also believe that the IPC has even been stronger than the IOC in terms of its stance on countries like Russia in that complete bans from uh, the Rio Paralympics, from, from Pyeongchang as well. It's a very strong message to send, isn't it, from the IPC?
1: Yes, I mean, I'm really proud that the IPC did stand up for that because there were clearly an organized and I you know I won't use the state sponsored phrase, but there was a definite systematic or, a systematic malpractice within the Russian system designed to cheat the system and, and and cheat other athletes of their medals, their place on the podium. And the sad thing is people never although we may through analysis of these samples now find out other cheats and there may be retrospective adjustments those athletes will never get their moment of glory. That's you can never recreate that situation where you go into the stadium and receive your medal for that, and that, and that's kind of the sadness for me,
0: and why it's really important that we are so strong in the fight against doping. Mm. You're chair of the British Paralympic Association, so you're well placed to be answering these sort of questions as well as so away from away from mm. the doping um, issues now. But um, we've just seen that Malaysia has been stripped of the, the IPC World Swimming Championships because they won't let israeli athletes take part i mean your thoughts on on that is another strong start from the ipc and it doesn't also it doesn't leave a long time to get a replacement venue which are going to act as, as qualifiers for the for the Paralympics, right
1: yeah i mean that is the challenge finding the replacement but again i think what they're trying to do is distance politics from sport and to try and make that they're their stance is that everyone should have an opportunity and that applies both ways so if it was held in Israel they would expect a reciprocal you know a situation where anyone would be allowed to participate and i think that's the view that the IPC is taking is that sport should be for all without you know as long as you are competing fairly and honestly then you know you have the right to
0: participate and i think that's laudable it's remarkable thing that we've already just over a year and a half until the Tokyo games it doesn't feel like that long ago that you know, Rio uh, was going on so Tokyo 2020 147 medals in Rio 64 of them gold. target this time is a, is a range but the range the top range is is a little bit higher looking on course for that
1: yes i mean medals are important because without the success you don't get the attention which allows you to demonstrate the positive power of the Paralympic movement and the the achievements of people with disabilities to, uh, you know, to change society. So if we didn't win any medals, you know, the interest would go down. But the standard is constantly increasing. I think the thing that we can be proud of in the UK is that we have been consistently... yeah, you know, pretty much a top five nation throughout the whole history of it, and the top three in most uh, you know recent games, and that's showing consistency where other nations tend to have kind of waxes and waning in terms of performance. Australia, you know, Sydney Games, you know, peaked and then you know dropped away. You know, you have to have a consistent uh, system to give people with disabilities opportunities to participate and train at the highest level, so you can then perform and then we will give athletes hopefully the best opportunity and then it's
0: up to them on the on the field of play to to perform. Just going back to again going back to London and this boom how much has the success of the of the Paralympic games in the past decade really acted as an inspiration for people with disabilities to take up sports and we're not talking even about we're not talking about the elite level we're just talking like rec- recreationally maybe possibly it could have been that the opportunities weren't as weren't as high they maybe didn't see another, other people with similar disabilities doing sport but have you seen a massive change there i wouldn't say it's been a massive change but there
1: has been a change there has been an increase in the number of people with impairments participating that's partly kind of feeling that they have the right to do so to go into your leisure center and you know i think mean, uh, sport england has you know been helping to fund equipment so it, before people, you would go into a gym and say, "Oh, well, there's, there's no pe- wheelchair users here." Well, that's because there's no equipment for them to use. So, if you put equipment in, that gives them opportunity to go and you know participate. Uh, the BPA have run a um, website called Parasport, which actually is being currently just redeveloped with uh, partnership with Toyota um, to allow people to look in their area for their particular impairment or the different sport they would like to see and look at the participation opportunities. Mm. And this is great, because one of the things is people say, well, OK, I'd like to do this, but where do I go to? How do I find the right person? Mm. So by developing this, it's been giving people opportunities to find out more. And that's just for participation. And then from then on, obviously, it will then feed into the individual governing body and, you know, into development through to the more elite programs Mm.
0: And, and with that, with the profile of, of the Paralympics and how it and how it has grown, would you events like the Invictus Games? Do you think without the success of something like London 2012, we would have the Invictus Games? Would they be would they have quite the profile that they have as well?
1: I mean, the Invictus Games is is fantastic, and I've been very privileged to be involved in that as well. And it's interesting because the Stoke Mandeville Games came about from injured servicemen after World War Two. And they were predominantly people with spinal cord injury, and that's how the Paralympic Games evolved. Unfortunately, due to the ongoing conflicts around the world, we now have a lot of servicemen with injuries. And also recognising that a lot of it is around, you know, the mental health aspects of being exposed to that environment of seeing your friend or colleague, you know, blown up you know, in front of you or shot. You know, that, you know it's quite traumatic experiences. So understanding that the mental health is equally important. I think that's where Invictus is different. It's, it's about an individual's recovery and finding, you know, reconnecting with, with various aspects of life, family. But the sort of impairments you have there from a physical side are different because people who had their legs blown off on the battlefield in World War II would have died, would have bled to death on the battlefield. Now, because of the medical care, those people are surviving and there are different impairments than more, you know people with triple amputees who, who are participating. I sort of saw some amazing rowing in, in the Invictus Games you know, with uh, in triple amputees, extraordinary performances. So for some people, it's just a re-engagement with life, but actually there is also a pathway through to elite sports for those who want to choose that. And in the Pyeongchang Winter Games last year, we had Scott Mina in the Nordic program who'd come through the Invictus pathway. And there have been others as well in, in summer sports. Mm. So it's great. And this year, they're going to hold a UK Invictus Games for over so 500 people up in Sheffield in July, which is fantastic. Mm.
0: Just away from that, you've just been confirmed as one of the keynote speakers for the Vista conference uh, in Amsterdam. Can you tell us what that's about and, and what, the, what the purpose of that conference is? Yeah, the, uh, the, the Vista
1: conference is the International Paralympic Committee Science and Medicine uh, Conference, and it gathers the experts from around the world to do with the areas relating to medicine and health, science and technology, and uh, but also classification, which is one of the key elements as well. It's one of the cornerstones of the Paralympic movement because until we ensure that classification is as good as it can be, you know, it's one of the the weaknesses, as I would say, in the system. People need to have confidence when they're on the starting lineup that the people in their class are of a similar impairment. And it's great to bring the experts from around the world together to talk about the research, to discuss this and to showcase it. And,
0: uh, yeah, I'm really... Looking forward to going to Amsterdam to to do my talk there. There have been quite high profile instances of that, haven't there, in the media and athletics with the classification system.
1: Yes, I think I think firstly the media attention is interesting because some years ago we couldn't get any attention for anything. (laughs) Athletics is more challenging because across track and field events you've got about forty seven different classes. So the more divisions you have, you have more people who are just above or just below that changing class. And so you're going to get more issues. And if you look at the history of it, it's come from a medical model of initially, so people with spinal cord injury, right, you're a T4, you go in this level, you're a L2, you go in, you go in this group, because it's more obvious. But as the movement has become more diverse and inclusive... So you've got different types of impairment kind of coming together. You've got people with cerebral palsy maybe competing with against people with polio or spinal cord injury. And you're trying to match these together of how their particular impairment impacts on their ability to do that sport. So it's gone going from a medical model to a sport function model. And that evolution and understanding of getting the, the cut lines takes time and science and input and constant evolution mm. and it's never I think probably unlike to be perfect but we as, as long as we keep re-examining it and getting more evidence in and building that
0: then there'll be greater trust in it. Mm. Just coming back full circle to your work here at the university what is the rewarding part of being involved in higher education for you?
1: I think that being able to develop research interests share that with colleagues make networks not only in the uk but across the world discuss ideas and with a with a real purpose that has an impact on people for me my research unless it's has an impact as the end point it's no point in doing it it has to be purposeful to help improve safety to improve uh um, education change the way that sport acts for the benefit of the athlete, mm. so it has to be purposeful and By doing that and engaging colleagues, the teaching element you know the education element is is really fantastic, but working with others to develop that that research base you know I was talking at the beginning about how it 's changed from you know nine articles altogether up until one thousand nine hundred and ninety two to over one hundred this year. Mm forming that network and taking the whole specialty forward is really rewarding and when you have a job that you love doing then it's 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 easy to continue doing it yeah
0: i'm sure it'll be an absolutely fascinating lecture as well at the uh, at the end of february um, we close every podcast by asking some questions which are very straightforward but completely away from your work first one is would you pick your favorite place in sussex
1: probably just has to be on the downs here
0: really particularly a place where you can
1: see the sea as well i mean we're so fortunate to have the sea and the downs and yeah to be up on the downs on a lovely day and you can see the sea
0: too that's probably the best and then finish the walk with the pub at uh, the pub <laughs> what are you currently uh reading watching and or listening to could be all three could just be one could just be two currently reading uh a couple of books one
1: is uh tombland by cj sansom i don't really know the shard lake series uh chris sansom actually is uh, someone i know he's 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 a sussex resident and um it's kind of um historical fiction and it's it's fascinating the detail he goes into is extraordinary and the other one is the latest strike uh Series of the J.K. Rowling's alter ego, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and they're they're extraordinary. Again, that's quite interesting because it involves an amputee uh, um, as the as the uh, protagonist. So they're the two books I'm reading at the moment. I'm waiting expectantly for the next series of the Crown, mm-hmm.
0: um, which I enjoyed immensely. If you had no responsibilities for the weekend, and you said to you, "We're going to arrange for you your perfect weekend," how would that look? It
1: would probably involve again a, a nice walk and a visit to the pub, see the family and grandchildren, um, and a good meal somewhere.
0: And if you could uh, invite, finally, if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would you pick? That's that's a good
1: one. That's a good one. I mean, there are kind of your kind of. Uh, I mean, many people would probably say you know you're Nelson Mandela's and and so on, and and that that would be extraordinary to to have a chance to share some words with him. From a sporting perspective, my my hero has always been Gareth Edwards, or Sir Gareth Edwards as he is now, who is inspirational to me uh, as as a rugby player and an athlete. So it'd be good to spend time with him. But I I, I do like funny people, people with a sense of humour, and uh, you can imagine at a dinner party probably someone like Darrow Breaux or somebody like that would just you know someone who would who would bring a bit of joy t- to to the evening. I think yeah.
0: Thanks to Nick for his time. If you want to hear more, you can book your place at his lecture on Wednesday the 27th of February by following the links in the podcast description or visit brighton.ac.uk and book via the university's website. Next week, I'll be speaking to Harm Van Marwick, professor in general practice at Brighton and Sussex Medical School that's run jointly by the University of Brighton and the University of Sussex. He'll be speaking ahead of his own inaugural lecture which takes place in March. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe Subscribe or follow via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for listening.